Welcome back to the Ship It IO podcast after a slight hiatus. One of the things we say at Rocket is that we have strong opinions loosely held, and that often applies to software or services that we use, coding practices, but it also applies to how we see organizations run, how their structure is, and how they operate, especially at scale. Today we have Matt Merrill and Jesse Streb with us, and uh, like myself, we come from an engineering background, but now we are also seeing the higher level of how teams are created and run. So we see these problems from both sides. Matt Merrill was instrumental in writing an ebook that Rocket has put out all about scaling teams. Uh, it goes into great detail about this, and we highly recommend you download it and check it out because it covers more than we'll cover today. But I wanted to open up this conversation by saying, you know, me personally, I think that transparency and democracy go a very long way at any organization. We often talk in the engineering world about code smells. You know, some, it's almost like a spidey sense of like, oh, that's not right. Something's wrong here. Uh, let's rethink this problem. I wonder if there is such a thing as a team smell. Or a team funk, you know, not like a locker room smell, but like something that you can identify with your brain that might be able to uh, solve these problems ahead of time. So uh, someone who has thought about this a lot, Matt, have you thought about that at all? I never thought about it in terms of team smells, but I really like it. Two things come to mind. The first is, you know, especially at smaller companies when they're trying to save costs, you hire a lot of junior people. They tend to be cheaper. They tend to be passionate, tend to get a lot done, but they don't necessarily have the experience to wrangle all that. And then the other thing that comes to mind also is this concept of tribal knowledge or just people knowing things on the team. And how do you know that? I don't know. It was just experience. And as a team grows, that falls down really, really, really quickly. Is tribal knowledge the same thing as domain knowledge? Sort of like a business has as they grow over time, like, why is this thing called Canary? And it's like, oh, because it was a Canary in a coal mine, but it became permanent. And who cares what it's called? Is it that sort of thing? Or is it more like my knowledge, because I'm old and I was around when we didn't have console dev tools. That's a really good question. No, I th- I, th- I consider tribal knowledge like less about domain knowledge, but it can include that and more about, okay, well, in order to deploy the app, if you need to restart it, you got to go into ECS, Elastic Container Service, and you got to set the number of tasks to zero, and then you got to put it back to one. Oh, that's how you restart it. Is that written down anywhere? No, you just got to know it. And then everybody moves on. And doesn't do anything about it. And it's just one of those things you got to know. And the only way that you find out about it is when the shit hits the fan and everybody's panicking and then you find it out. And like, that's the problem when it's written down in a place that's easily findable. It's going to keep you more of a well-oiled machine. So I'm curious what Jesse has to say about this one too. Yeah, no, I agree. And the other thing I would say is fixing the underlying issue sometimes, right? Oftentimes I see with like the tribal knowledge is like, oh, we've got this band-aid and it works all the time. And if you're in the know, you know how to apply that band-aid. But there's an underlying issue here that like, hey, that should have just, we should be able to just restart, you know, those containers automatically. Like, or maybe it should have failed a health check and restarted rather than just like hanging, like whatever that might be. I, I would agree like that it can get really dangerous. And you touched on this in your blog post, which I totally agreed with which is that it's a dangerous path to go down where it's suddenly viewed as a badge of honor. Like I, Brandon and I worked at a company together and I remember it was almost this rite of passage. How long is it going to take you to get your build environment set up? And like nothing ever worked. It wasn't documented, but it was like, okay, if you can get it done by the end of the week, cool, you know what you're doing. And it was like this like weird test. And like, I remember at the time I was pretty junior, I was like really proud of myself. I'm like, great, I got it up and running. It took me three days. And like, that was considered decently fast. And I was like, okay, great. I'm going to move on. That's awesome. I was able to do it. But like, the reality is that like, I should have taken an hour, right? And rather, and everyone should have paused and be like, why is this taking three days? And let's go figure this out, right? Like, that's not necessarily an okay thing. Back to your original question, Brandon, just like the team smell. For me, like one of the things is like, hey, this is how I know that we kind of have a scaling issue. 
is when it's hard. You don't want to just track velocity, right? So a lot of people look at the zero points like, oh, our velocity is going. But like all those numbers are made up anyway. So you can't track velocity. So it's one of those things like it's almost like profanity, right? Like you know it when you hear it or see it. It's like one of those things where like you know, like you can tell like your team is slowing down. And when that happens, like one technique I've seen that I, I think is really interesting is you do, it's called like skip level interviews. And so like if you have like a VP of engineering, rather than asking your director, like, why are we going so slow? He's going to be, and naturally, right? He's going to be put on the spot and want to like essentially cover his ass and maybe like point to other people. You jump down a level into either the tech leads or the actual team itself and not in an aggressive way. Because it's not one of those things where you're pointing fingers and someone's screwing up. There's something wrong in your process and you're just trying to understand it. And it could be one of the many reasons Matt lays out in that in his blog post. But until you actually talk to people that are living it every single day, you don't really know. And so I, I think the skip level thing is a really interesting way for kind of the stakeholders and decision makers to be able to, to figure that out. It was reminding me of that saying, you know, I, I hope I'm not like co-opting something here, but like nothing, nothing for us without us or something like that. Right. Like, I mean, I see retrospectives in the agile process as perhaps the most important meeting. I know a lot of people. It's a bummer when stakeholders don't show up, though. I've been a part of that. I, I actually take a different view that I think it's better when stakeholders aren't there and managers aren't there. And it's simply the team because they can speak freely. But somebody with control and power should be paying attention to those results and helping the team get rid of those issues. But like it's. It's very similar to what, what Jesse said. I really like that idea of like a director talking directly to the people, to the individual contributors, because yeah, they're going to know it. And it would be really interesting for like a director to look at retrospective results too, and be like, why does this keep coming up week after week? Right. Just because something came up one, uh, excuse me, sprint after sprint, just because something came up one sprint doesn't mean it's necessarily an issue, but if it keeps coming up, oh man, like that's, that's not good. Yeah, no, that's good. But I agree on the retro too, especially when you first kick off a project. Like it's really important that you're doing those because that's a way to it's a way to hash through like what how you work with each other, right? Like we and it's a little bit unique for us because you know we're coming in as really an, an outside agency, but I've seen it time and time again where you come in these new, you know, a different vertical that's not necessarily used to agile development. And so they have their set ways of doing things. And the retros are a really good way for us to suddenly understand each other, where we're coming from and tweak the way that we're doing that agile process so that all parties are comfortable with it and move forward. And the one thing we always do in those is we take, you, you, you identify, hey, this is what we want to change our action items. Then you vote and you take those two things and actually add it to the Jira board. That's the way it makes something actually happens. There's nothing, I think we've all been on those teams where like, yeah, you complain about it every sprint and then nothing happens. And then by the end, you're like, I'm just going to stop complaining about it because no one's listening anyway. So if you can actually add it to the Jira board, then at least you can see change happening and things progress. I've also had that go the other direction where you see it never get moved up, but at least you had evidence that it never got moved up. It's almost like a paper trail. So it's still worth doing because that paper trail will support your argument later on if you're trying to complain to management or whoever's above you. Like if you're trying to make an argument for your efforts and what you're trying to see change happen, um, that's a great way to do it. So yeah, always log your complaints because you're going to be the one taking care of them anyway. Um, it's interesting. You mentioned Agile, and I want to talk about that for a brief, well, it won't be brief, but let's talk about it for a minute. Every That's an overloaded term in our industry. I think it's safe to say. Uh, everyone has a different term of what MVP means, and minimal viable product means a different thing to every person. And I've seen Agile be very different uh, depending on where uh, I am. So it could be Agile Fall uh, is what I like to call it, where it's still a waterfall process, but everyone uses two-week sprints and they call it Scrum, so they think they're doing Agile. And I also think that Scrum masters have become overloaded over time, but that's my opinion. So I'm curious to know, what does Agile mean in our world for a good team that can scale? 
instead of talking about all the bad stuff. What is, let's talk about the, the better one. Oh boy, you I could go on for a half an hour about this. I was going to go way back and just talk about like, I, I think Agile has just been so diluted into something that is practically meaningless at this point that I look back to why the Agile Manifesto was created. And I know there's probably a certain subset of people listening that maybe haven't even seen the Angela Manifesto. And if you haven't, you should go take a peek because it's stark. Like, I mean that in the sense of like, there's not much there. And there's a reason for that. It's a list of principles. And that's where I, my mind always goes to is, and I, I write about this in the, in the ebook and the blog post. Don't think you need to plan everything up front. Start with a loose framework that follow principles and like adjust. And, you know, one of the sayings everybody talks about at Rocket is let's put, put one dumb foot in front of the other and course correct as you go. That's the way I see it working. It's like, okay, if you have upper management who wants reports and things like that, do what you need to do to, to make your stakeholders happy. But when it comes to actually running your team and getting things done, just do what you think is right and what the team wants to do and like let everything else fall into place. Otherwise, you're just, in my opinion, fighting a losing battle and it's you're you're kind of going through motions for no good reason and you might be thinking like oh okay well as you think about scaling isn't that not going to scale i think it can i think if you put a certain locus of control for each separate squad team whatever you want to call it and let them operate within a loose set of constraints i think you're actually going to see things accelerate a lot more along that same vein and you definitely touched on this on a blog post it's empowering the teams right like you should just view agile as a loose framework to empower teams to make decisions and mistakes, right? They're going to make mistakes too. And that's fine. And let that be okay. I remember one particular client, it was crazy. Like they, because they were so driven by those reports, they didn't want to ever drag news stories into a sprint because they didn't want anything spill over. And so we literally have like one to two days at the end of the sprint where like, it was this really weird limbo world where they almost didn't want us do it. Like they didn't want us doing anything because it would screw up the report. And so it was like, we would be doing like hidden work behind the scenes. And that was, they talk about team smells. It was like, oh my gosh, like this is so inefficient and it's all for the, all the wrong reasons, right? You're doing it all for a report rather than to your point, Matthew touched upon. It's like, yeah, trust, you hire good people, you trust them and you have a loose framework so you kind of understand what's going on. But like anyone can make a report look good. So don't live and die by that report because it, it's meaningless. Yeah, nothing, nothing gets under my skin more than people who are like, ooh, that's a really good velocity chart. Who cares? Look at that burn down chart. Yeah, burn down. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I was using the wrong term. I think most people could get away from getting into that trap if you just drop the concept of timing to a sprint. It's always a to-do list anyway. The timing of a sprint is just tied to an organization for stakeholders and like, I got to hit a Q2 thing, but like they shouldn't look at it like that because what ends up happening is you spend all this time being like, let's move all those stories from the last sprint into this sprint. Let's look at this burndown chart. Oh, shucks. What did we get wrong here? And you're like, this meeting is wrong. So that's my take on that. Like if you just drop the concept of two weeks and you realize that that's just for stakeholders, not for the development, then you actually can move a lot faster and have much more predictability into the roadmap because it's just a big to-do list. Well, that's that's Kanban. That's Kanban, yeah. That's effectively Kanban, yeah. And I understand the challenge there because like, as you scale that organization, right? If you've got a team of like 150 people working on something, you're also responsible for reporting up to the board of like, hey, how are we actually doing? So you need something. But yeah, the burn down chart drives me nuts because it's like, if I see a healthy burn, what they call a healthy burn down chart where it's like just scaling down literally, I'm like, something's wrong. Like, it's not working. Like, someone's cheating. <laughs>
Yeah, it's interesting. This whole concept right here about, um, you mentioned empowering, but I actually think the underlying theme there is trust. It's sort of, say, you're saying, you know, the people that you have hired to run these teams should be trusted to run with them on their own, have their own space to run in their own sandbox, their own corral. How big that sandbox is, I think, varies from organization to organization. I mean, you think of healthcare, it's going to be a lot more restrictive than starting up in streaming media or something like that. I'll mention one more thing before we get into the nitty gritty of like technical stuff. Well, a little more in the weeds technically. We were talking earlier about how these changes sort of build up. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, this domain knowledge, this tribal knowledge. After that company that Jesse was referring to, I left and went to this company. And my boss there was fantastic, to be honest. And um, I didn't stay there for long, but he was a great boss. And one piece of advice he said to me that has stuck with me since then is there's nothing more permanent than temporary. So if you say something like, we're just going to temporarily put this there and it won't last for that long, you're wrong. <laughs> It'll probably be there for the next seven years. And that's what can create a lot of tribal knowledge. So you have to really commit to not having things build up as tech debt. And I think that if you cannot commit what that tech debt value is to someone who maybe isn't technical, like to the business, like there's a business need for this. You have to show that or at least get them on board of every six weeks, give us one week of tech debt, you know, like that kind of thing to deal with. And that'll help. But uh, those things can stay around forever and cause a lot of that domain knowledge problem. I remember uh, Brandon and I were on a project together. I remember the first time you said that to me, we, we had to get it there, had to get a release. Out. It wasn't even anything Brandon and I had written. It had nothing to do with us, but like we got to get this thing live. And they could not figure out how to get an AWS and the Docker containers, and it wasn't our DevOps team. And so we're like, we can just get up on Heroku. You guys want to get up on Heroku? And we're like, okay, we'll get on Heroku. And are like, you got to get this off in a week. They're like, no problem. And Brandon's like, it is nothing more permanent and temporary. And I'm like, no, no, it's going to be fine. And then, like, it was literally three years later, that thing was like, we've been out of there for years. And it was like, every year, I'm like, can we kill this thing yet? I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was a great example. That lasted. I forgot about that one. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think the weird part of me is like, I actually don't see anything wrong with taking those shortcuts as long as you do it really, really deliberately. Okay. If you got to deploy to Heroku, write a CI CD script to do it and make it push button. As long as like you have things automated, you're probably going to be okay. But it's when it's like, no, in order to put it out to Heroku, you got to like on the fifth uh, cycle of the ninth moon of the year, like you have to like, sometimes it doesn't deploy, just kick it. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah just shut it off turn it back on yeah so uh you mentioned earlier that ecs reference like oh change zero to one before you deploy change it back after like that's a devops thing and i want to talk about Dallas for a second and infrastructure in general because it has changed radically over the years like it used to be oh man you gotta like get this environment set up in the colo i gotta like get my guy down in there into the, like this like mole man colo. basement outfit and like get him to like wire into the machine and deploy all this stuff infrastructure and networking there's one of your servers that has changed radically with the cloud obviously but now if we had talked about this years ago it'd be like we'd probably be talking about ansible and is chef one of them pup i don't even know like a devops world i barely touch on yeah chef puppet ansible for me, it would be like, I'm just going to write a node script that touches all the CLI stuff and hope for the best. Nowadays, that's not the case anymore. And, and I'm thinking big buzzwords, Kubernetes, Terraform. Uh, what does this mean for teams? Should they like learn this stuff? Is it just going to be a flash in the pan? Is this going to fix their problem? Is this, is, can they Kubernetes all the things and solve their problems? You probably don't. You know what? I'm not going to go down the Kubernetes rat hole. But no, I, I think, think that was a curveball. Uh, but let's go back to Terraform. Yeah, I'm not taking, <laughs> I'm not taking your bait on Kubernetes, but... Um... I do think, I think DevOps is extremely important. And I think that if you're in a small team without a DevOps team, you need to make the priority to get somebody or maybe at least two people on your team familiar with how to create that stuff and do it from the ground up. Um, if you don't, you like that, that is not having automation and CICD and fully automated deployments is probably 
I would say the biggest problem of scaling a team. It's one of the more black and white things that you can do to help your team scale. It's not necessarily easy or simple, but it's like, if you don't have it, you are going to have problems. Yeah. The developer experience will be bad. Guaranteed. The developer experience, your stakeholders and your business is going to be like, wait, what do you mean it takes three days for us to get this color change into production or whatever it is? Uh, and what do you, or what do you mean? Like changing a color caused downtime? Like, how is that possible? And it's only with an investment in, you know, automation of your infrastructure that you can avoid that. And like, it doesn't need to be anything crazy, right? Like you mentioned Heroku before, like if you have an automated Heroku deployment, great, you're off to a good start. And as you scale, like get more advanced and like, if you do have the luxury of having somebody who knows like Terraform and AWS and all stuff like that, leverage them. And especially like, I'm going to say like when your team gets to about 10 developers, that's really when you should start thinking about hiring a DevOps person. If you haven't already, if you haven't already, I think is a big thing. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a really good rule to, to live by. And it, to your point, if it be in black and white, it's one of those, it's one of those, sometimes it's not easy to identify why your team's not moving or scaling as well as you think you could. DevOps is a pretty clear one. It's often a hard one to untangle. Like if, if you've waited that long, it can be really hard. It's, it's not an easy one from an implementation standpoint, but it's definitely an easy one from an identifying perspective. And I think you're a spot on that. Like, and it's definitely what we talk to like startups about is like start simple, right? So like might, let's say Heroku, for instance, and like, we'll say like containerize it from day one. You get this on your blog list too, Matt, of like containerization is, is helpful for a lot of reasons. It's helpful from both, hey, how we're going to deploy it. So yeah, maybe we're deploying Heroku today, but Sunday we might deploy an AWS and it's going to be an easier transition as well as it also makes it so like, hey, I added a new person to my team and this dude's super passionate about Linux and doesn't want to use this Mac that we gave him. No problem. We've already have a containerized. He'll be able to get up and running, and there shouldn't be any oddities or weird, you know, references we talked about before, like tribal knowledge and like, oh, you're a Linux person, you've got to do X, Y, Z with this package. Um, so I think like containerization, uh, Terraform has definitely been kind of our de facto, just because it helps um, have that abstract layer and then also have that infrastructure as code, so it's just easy to stamp those out. But again, if you're you know if you're like a three person team and you want to get up and running. Using something, you know, using something like Heroku or one of the other kind of platforms as a service is a totally reasonable way to go. Just know that you have a plan and a path forward because you will outgrow it someday, and you don't want that to be this massive disruption. Yeah, don't let that be the temporary thing. <laughs> yeah, the keeping it simple is is really like is the key because, all right, I'm going to bite on Kubernetes. Like our our new our new head of DevOps, Jirawat, like he had this. We, there was this commu- There was this t- uh, discussion in our in our DevOps Slack channel about Kubernetes and whether we should use it. And he comes out like there's this whole string of conversation about it going back and forth. He comes in on an hour. He goes, "Do you have you ever seen a Lamborghini back up?" And everybody's like, "No." And he sends a video of a Lamborghini backing up and. I didn't know this, but in order to back up a Lamborghini, you actually have to open the gull wing door and stick your head out and back up. And he's like, and he uses this, he starts going on, like going on about Kubernetes is like, it's the Lamborghini is like, it can go super fast. It's super slick, but it's a little bit hard to drive. You got to learn how to drive it. And like, if you got to get it fixed, it's really expensive. And like you, if you want to do something simple, like back up, sometimes it's really hard. I was like, oh my God, that's like the best analogy and I couldn't agree with it more. And then, you know, he goes on to say like, but there's certain times where that's, that's appropriate, but back to the, back to the keep it, it's simple. Like 
I wouldn't go straight into something like Kubernetes. I wouldn't go something straight into like having five different microservices. Start with a monolith deployed on Heroku and see where you go from there, right? Like it's it's super important. Wait, wait until it's painful? Yeah, or maybe slightly before. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, over, over invest in DevOps. Like not wait for it to be painful, like get ahead of it a little bit because it'll make, if you wait for it to be painful, it's too late. Like you're going to lose so much time trying to unravel everything else you've already done. Yeah. If your skin is already red, it's too late to put the sunblock on. Okay. Well said. That's a great segue. So, uh, (laughs) thanks dad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, like these ransomware attacks and all these pipeline attacks there, it's only a matter of time. I mean, not a matter of time. It's happening right now. The cloud infrastructure stuff is part of that vulnerability. And it's the weakest part in the chain is always the human who's putting it up there in the first place. So, if that isn't done well, like we were saying earlier, you know, if you can start with some people on the team who might be able to take that on as additional knowledge while you grow, but as you start to get to like serious production scale, you should treat that as also your security layer and like take it very seriously. And so DevOps is important. It, it encompasses a lot. We could go down that rabbit hole for a while. So I'm going to back us out of it for a second, but I'll go down a different one that I'm going to try my best not to get fired up over. Anyone who knows me or Googles my name will see that I... Do not mind getting in flame wars with people on GitHub. So I'm curious to know what are some of your pet peeves when it comes to code review process, which I have seen be very smooth and easy. It can almost be like bad where no one reviews anything. Like it's just like, eh, whatever, I don't care. Or to the opposite where it's like, you have to have five people approve this and it's like Google and nothing ever ships and it goes around and around and around for nine months. And then all of a sudden it's like, I want my comments like this. I want my comments like that. These are conflicting things. I've seen all this stuff and I'm sure you've seen a lot of it too. What are some of your pet peeves and what do you see work? The first I'd say, like one of the one of those things we always go with is uh, speed bumps, not roadblocks. Basically, meaning like, hey, have some checks and balances in there to like help slow you down, but don't create a bottleneck, right? Like I've seen teams where it's like only this one person can review and approve PRs, and like it just ends up being a massive bottleneck, right? Because you're constantly waiting for that person. That person is usually probably the more senior person that's also doing a million other things, and then you end up with all these PRs backing up. You end up with PRs backing up. They end up getting old. You end up having merge conflicts. And you know what? It's just frustrating for everyone. So that'd be the first thing is like, don't do that. Um, as far as code reviews, like uh, agree upon like ahead of time with a team. And I think it always depends on how senior that team is and how junior they are. Like if it's a pretty junior team, I actually think having a more strict review process is a good thing because they want that guidance and that understanding of like what to expect. Um, but just generally having that agreed upon, like, you know, you're going to have some winter, like everyone's going to have that winter. It's so, like, great, have a winter in there, agreed upon it. Um, have some general, like, guiding principles for those code reviews of like, hey, if a file gets a lot bigger than X, Y, Z lines, like, we're going to break it apart. Like, have those ideas like, hey, you know, don't re- don't necessarily abstract something out just to abstract it out, right? Like, I, I think we use, like, the rule of three often, which is like, hey, if you see it three times, you need to abstract it out into a, a common file or a service or whatever you want it, whatever that want that to be. So I would say that, like, right, if you get people that are just being too pedantic with, like, their PRs, it can just be, like, a soul sucker and just crush people. But again, it comes down to how senior people are because, you know, ideally, everyone's learning from each other and you've got a bunch of, like, senior folks or a mix of, like, senior and junior folks that are having, like, healthy conversations in those PRs. Um, but definitely like I always view it as like, you just need to have another person that's reviewing that. You don't necessarily have like a bunch of them. You want to be able to trust your team to have that in there. You're going to have a strong CI CD pipeline anyway, to be able to get that through. Um, and then you course correct it. Like put, you talked about earlier, like put one foot from the other course correct it to go. Right. I've seen also the worst case scenarios I've seen is like, you have a super dysfunctional team 
And so you suddenly have like people pairing off or like, Hey, you review mine, get it in there. Just like trying to merge up in. And like, you have this like weird thing when that happens, like, then you got to figure that out. But I don't, I don't like to fix those at a process level. You want to fix that at the people level, because if you try to fix that at the process level, you end up with like a ton of red tape, which just sucks for everyone else that comes in and inherits that red tape rather than fixing like, Hey, Joe Schmo, stop just having like Curly and Larry, like reviewing their own PRs and putting a bunch of bugs in production. Like we're going to solve that problem. People are very creative at finding ways around very, very strict rule sets. The last thing I was going to say is, is one that we also do is just keeping accountability on reviews. So whoever is the person that reviewed it is equally responsible if a bug hits production as the person that wrote it. That's a really good one. Yeah, I like everything you just said. I think the first thing that came to mind when Brandon asked the question for me was like, well, do you have code reviews? Like, you know, number one, if you don't have code reviews, that's not going to scale. You know, when you think about like you have two developers, maybe you don't have a code review process, but you probably should. The other thing is like, I, I always tell people like, like code reviews should be a like a, uh, an engaging and dare I say fun activity for the team. Like I've, I've been on teams where that's the case. And like, if it's not like, how can you get it there? So like, I encourage a lot of, especially juniors to ask questions in PRs. If you're wondering why something is happening, ask a question. Don't, don't make a statement, ask a question and encourage that discussion. You're going to learn something. You might actually cause that person to go, Hmm, oh, actually I didn't mean to do that. Or I should have done it a different way. And if you do have a comment, be very, very clear about its level of importance, at least your opinion of the level of importance. So I try to be really deliberate when I say something like change such and such because such and such. Like, and that means like, yeah, I really want you to change that. If it's a minor thing, like, I don't know, somebody's using a ternary when I think it could be clearer if they use like an if else or something. It's like, consider using such and such because it might improve readability. Consider, okay, no, I considered it. I'd rather not do that. That's a stylistic thing. Um, and I found that just those simple language tweaks sometimes can get rid of a lot of hard feelings. And especially the question asking thing, like that's what makes it fun or could make it fun. So yeah, that's a good one. The question thing I've seen, um, it's not one I've ever encouraged people to do, but I've seen it happen. It's a really good point that you called out especially if you're a junior engineer, like you're not sure if, Hey, yeah. It's like, especially if you're like, you wrote something, you're like, I'm not sure that's the best way to write it. Like it's good to ask, like call it on your own comment. Yeah. You're to be like, Hey, I was curious about this. Cause like the reality is that you might get a senior engineer, but might see it and it's be like, yeah, it's not the right way to do it. You should probably do it this way, but they just don't want to even do it for, may not want to leave that comment because right. they're trying to be overly sensitive to your feelings, feeling a little lazy, who knows. And you miss an opportunity to learn something in that process. So I think it's a good point to be proactive of those questions, Matt. And pilot, piling on to that a little bit, like I encourage people to, you know, in GitHub, it's called a draft pull request. I'm sure there's other things in other other systems, but open them early. Just be be explicit. Be like, I'm not finished with this yet. I just want early feedback. Such and such isn't complete yet, but I'm looking for feedback on such and such specifically. And like, you gotta you gotta get rid of the imposter syndrome. Like you're the people will help you. Yeah. Yeah. Like I still do that. And I love doing that and getting more eyes on it anyway. So don't be afraid that you're, you might have written some crap. Maybe you did, but you're never going to learn it faster unless someone else points it out. So the last thing I was going to mention, because Matt put it in the, in the blog post, and I, I liked it. I, as first time I'd seen it, though I'd heard it in the past. When you think about comments in your code, don't say how, say why. Um, and it's just a, such a clear way to say something I feel like I've always thought because like, the code is the how, right? So just say how, why um, when you have those comments in there. 
And I personally like comments. I know some engineers will say you don't need comments, right? Because the code documents itself, but not always. <laughs> yeah, not always. I was thinking about this and I was like, sometimes PRs can be almost a debate, almost argumentative, almost conflict. And so some people are really averse to that kind of thing. For anyone who's leaving a code review or or responding to a code review, there's a thing that actually we were taught from one of our customers named Steven Ranella. He is he is the meat eater of the show Meat Eater, which is on Netflix. Anyway, he has this fantastic thing he goes by when he's talking about like arguments with his wife, uh, which is how important is this to me? And it's like if she's like, Steve, you never pick up your clothes. And he's, he's like, this is like a one to me. I'm just going to pick up my freaking clothes. You know what I mean? But he's like, Steve, you got to get that smoker off the porch. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is where I cook my meat. That's an eight. And he's like, I'm putting my foot down on that one. You're like, that kind of thing. So I like that when it comes to code reviews. You're like, you see the stylistic thing. Oh, they wrote a for loop instead of a for each or whatever. It's like a classic for loop. And they used let instead of const or something. And you're like, hey, you know, you should probably switch that. But like, whatever. That's a one to me. Um, so I think it's important to think about like, what is that problem actually to you on a scale of one to 10 and just go with that. And then if it's small, don't be a jerk about it. Be light about it. Pick your battles, pick your battles. Yeah. But now you can scale them. Now you have like a one to 10. Sometimes for people, they're like, oh, I can identify that on a scale. <laughs> That's helpful. Uh, Cause sometimes emotion gets in the way. We don't have too much time, but I do want to wrap up with a, a, a bit of a hard question. Maybe the hardest one of all, is there a point or is there some inflection point where a team just cannot come back from it? The, the company's too far gone. This thing isn't going to scale, uh, or is it possible to sort of like? Do you have to stop the train? Like, how do you how do you fix something that that big if it's gotten too big of a problem? I think you can always come back from it. Uh, I think it's it's like how painful is it going to be, right? Um, and I've seen it be really painful. I would say the ones where it's most painful is either a combination of just way too much tech debt that's been ignored for so long, um, and DevOps, right? Where like your environments. The business was like, we need to go faster. So you ended up like doubling your team size, whatever that team size was originally. You didn't have the infrastructure to support it. Everything's a hot mess trying to get things tested out there. Lots of bugs and getting pushed because you have both. Whenever you have that, inevitably, if you don't have environments, you can test it. You're going to end up things slipping through. And now trying to unwind that because at this point, you probably are in a scenario where the business has made a bunch of commitments. They've invested a ton of money doubling this team. They're trying to hit these deadlines for commits for whatever the functionalities that you're trying to deliver. And you really need to, to your point, but you just mentioned, Brandon, you really got to stop the train and fix either that tech debt or that DevOps. And it is virtually impossible to get buy-in from the company to do that. So you're going to have to keep the train going while you do it. And it's just a very, very hard thing to do. But I've seen multiple companies come back from it and, and get back to continue with our train analogy, get back on the tracks. So I think it is always, I've never seen it not be able to come back from, but it will be painful. People will get frustrated. Someone's going to leave. Someone's going to get fired. It's not going to be a pretty sight, but I've never seen it not be able to come back. Yeah, I suppose you could use that as a way to empower people to say like, I need your help to fix this. You've been dealing with this problem for a long time. Like it'll be painful before it gets better, but we're going to put you in a position where you're going to have a lot of control over it. The only thing I can come up with is the right leadership isn't put into place. You'll never come back from it. And what I mean by that is you need a technical leader who is has a lot of integrity and isn't afraid to speak up and say exactly what Jesse just said. Look, if we don't slow down, this will never get better. In fact, it will only get worse. Someone who's not afraid to say that and can also speak the right language to executives, product owners, whoever, stakeholders to convince them of that without getting themselves and the team in trouble. I think that the only situation where 
it will never get better is if you have that leadership that's willing to do that and is actually good at it and the business isn't willing to hear it and they just want to double down on the current approach. That's the only time when I don't, I don't think there's much hope, but I think if you have the right leadership, you can avoid that and reverse course. And you, know, you can read the the ebook and the blog post about, you know, characteristics of a good leader, but, you know, integrity and being able to speak the language of technology and business are key, crucial things. If we have any business folks that have stuck around to this point, business folks, if you have a technical leader that's telling you what you want to hear all the time, you don't have a good technical leader. Well, that's great. I mean, I feel like that's a a great point to end it on, right? That's a nice little little cap. All right, so uh, with what's left of the episode, we'll do uh, we'll do picks. We'll talk about you know just something we think is cool. That way, if you uh, if you want to go follow a link, go find a book, whatever. Uh, it's a good way to get exposed to new stuff. You go first. All right, I'll go first. There is a website out there called tryhackme.com. Maybe it's .org. I wish I had looked that up already. Uh, but it's cool. It's very gamified. It's a way to learn um, penetration testing and security stuff. But it also exposes you to a bunch of cool tools that you would not see. So if you're a web application developer, you get like get to use Burp Suite or Zap Proxy, and those are very very neat and powerful tools that you can use for like development too. So uh, it opens your eyes to that stuff. But it's very gamified. They have labs. Um, you can do a lot for free. So you can see if you like it or not before you sign up. And the cost isn't very high either for signing up. So check that out. Try hack me. I'll pass to Matt. You're, you guys are going to laugh, but this is what came to mind. So I've been doing a lot of running lately and I got this thing. It's called a flip belt. And it's this like this thing that goes around your waist that you can use to like put stuff in when you're running and doing stuff outside. Sounds ridiculous. It's just the greatest thing in the world. You can put your phone in there. You can put your keys in there. You can put water bottles. What's a fanny pack? Yes, but a super stylish flat fanny pack that you can hide under your shirt. No, you can hide it under your shirt. It's like a disappearing fanny pack. Flip belt. Go check it out. I'm picturing like the money belt from Eurotrip. Like just goes around your waist. Dude, you totally. That's exactly what I was picturing too. That's amazing. Oh my God. I think it is. <laughs> anyway, you can't see it. So uh, yeah, you, there you hear it. That's my great. pick is a, is a weird off takeoff on a fanny pack. I know everything's going to say Ted Lasso because I've been like super passionate about Ted Lasso for the last uh, year and a half. And I'm about to kick off my kids coaching season again which is going to make me like double down on Ted Lasso but uh I got I got a coach like Roy Kent yeah exactly, exactly <laughs> right come on you little pricks I'm like let's get out there yeah no, exactly uh but I'm also going to go with uh Bill Gates new climate change uh book as well just because I I thought it was an interesting read and I don't know I believe there's like all these hurricanes going out there and he's a super unpopular guy but I as an engineer I really appreciated the way he thought and talked about climate change and there was an entire chapter called what about cement, which one of our major clients deals with cement and, and climate change, which I didn't realize was such a big deal. So it's blown away. They had an entire chapter dedicated to it. Does he propose some uplifting solutions for, for change or should I not read this if I'm in a bad mood? should definitely not read it if you're in a bad mood. I know. I think he thought it was like super uplifting because he ended on like a high note, but I got to be honest, I was super discouraged when I read it, but that's okay. Oh dear. Okay. I started off reading by ordering solar panels and by the end, I'm like, What's the point? <laughs> I came back around. <laughs> Great. So we'll end on that sour note for... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Don't worry about scaling your teams because everything's doomed anyway. So. Yeah. No, um, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be learned. Uh, honestly, it just uh, it sounds like have an open dialogue about this with as many people as you can to try to solve the problems. It's not going to be one smoking gun. Um, check out the ebook and take some advice from it. Take it to your team. Sell the ideas. And uh, hopefully you can... Uh, Fix it yourself, but if not, you know where to find us.